0: All right, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, what's up guys? Uh, Saracen Sound episode two. Uh this, this time I have a very special guest. I found him on Twitter. I'm pretty sure that a lot of you guys know him as well. He's the, uh, he's an author and specialist in fiqh, taf- tafsir and history. He's a research manager at Yaqeen Institute and founder of Islamic Self-Help. Uh This is brother Ismail Kamdar. Uh Welcome brother. How are you? Assalamu alaikum Alhamdulillah. Well, How are you? I'm great. So um, tell us uh, tell us a bit about your ba- your background. What made you want to teach uh, Islam and Islamic history? So Alhamdulillah, I think my whole life has been Islamic studies, right? So uh,
1: my father was murdered when I was eight years old, raised by a single mom, very pious single mom, Alhamdulillah. Yeah. And uh, she always wanted me to study Islam. So at the age of 13, I went full-time into Islamic studies and uh, I graduated from an alim Alimiya program at the age of 20 and then I did a bachelor's degree in Islamic studies as well so this has been my whole life I started doing dawah when I was 15 wrote my first book when I was 22 did my first khutbah when I was like 16 uh, so my whole life has just been Islamic studies alhamdulillah. Uh, but it, it's been a journey because like I did my Alimiya program with Diobandi ulama then I did my bachelor's degree with Salafi ulama and I'm neither now, <laughs> because when you study across a variety of groups, you, uh, you you tend to not get boxed into one group, right? Because you tend to see the good and bad
0: of every group. So it's, it's uh, I purposely more...
1: chose to study with, with actually study with almost all of from almost every mother across the past twenty years or something.
0: Yeah, it seems that you've, uh, you know, you've bounced around quite a bit. And, you know, there's something very common, actually, that I noticed with, you know, those who actually produce many great work is that they never actually stayed with one group their entire lives. You know, many people have this this misconception that, you know, you have to specialize and, and, you know, really just dig your way for, I guess, 20, 30 years in one same place, which, you know, inadvertently places you in this bubble. But, you know, you've actually experienced firsthand what, you know, all these different, what the different uh, schools of thought and what different people are like when it comes to the study of Islam.
1: Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've been to, uh, I've been, like, with, I think, every possible group. Like, I spent a year at university studying with the modernist liberal types. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they failed me because of not agreeing with them. Uh, and then I literally went and attended Sufi halakats and uh, the liquor sessions. Uh, I've sat with some Shia ulama just to hear what they had to say. You know, just oh, to hear okay. their point of view. Yeah. yeah just yeah. just to see, okay, because I went through a phase where, like, in my late teens, I reached a phase where I was convinced Islam was the truth, but I wasn't sure which version of Islam. Yes, so yes. I've actually sat with everyone. I've even sat with, with the jihadi salafis. you know. I've sat with uh, the likes of Abdullah Al-Faisal and Jamaican. I've actually sat with him and had a one-on-one conversation with him back in those days. So I, I've been with every group and, and seen the good and bad, and, and uh, Alhamdulillah, I think it helped shape my understanding of Islam a lot.
0: Yes, very good. Um. You know uh, mo- the way that most of you know the people I've spoken to who know you, they know you through your Islamic history course, which is, by the way, everyone watching, very amazing course. I think you should go and get it. I'm gonna link it in the description too. Um, really, it, it's you. You go into really just the the right amount of detail, and you know the way your approach, your actual teaching approach is. You know, uh, even you know, setting aside just the, how great the actual content is. You know, you don't. But you don't bother everyone with, with all and you know muddle everything with dates and names and you know the different events and actually you would do you don't follow this extremely strict timeline but rather you take the approach you know you're telling it as if you're telling a story to really as if you're telling a story to a, a, a group of growing children who need to learn their own history which i think is very is is really the situation that a lot of us are in you know there's a saying that uh, you know he who doesn't learn history will forever remain a child and sadly, I think that's the, the the way most of us are in the situation that most of us are in now. You know, we're in this perpetual state of childhood where you know we're we're you know, we're rattling off about uh, different political matters, different uh, stuff like how do we how do we reorganize, how do we do this? But you know, they don't know extremely basic things about our history, which really can prove detrimental as they they go on. And these are you know full grown adults that are that are falling prey to this. You know, guys in their thirties and forties. So uh, tell me, okay. Uh, can you get into Can you get a bit into your philosophy and your approach to studying and teaching history?
1: Okay, I think I need to go back with this. So yeah. history has always been a passion of mine. Like one of my earliest memories of reading was reading books about the Sirah when I was six years old. That's like my first memory of actually having a book. What was the Sirah book and uh, reading the of the Sahaba as a child. So even when I was a teenager, one of the things that frustrated me about the Alimia program is they don't teach history. Uh, and it, it was the, the, the way they taught history was so weak that I actually had my teachers would actually ask me, like, class, like, who's the Sahabi, who did this, who's the Sahabi, who did that, because even at the age of 14, 14, I was known like the only person in class who knew all the Sahaba and the stories. Uh, so history was always a passion of mine. I loved history. And uh, what irritated me was it was either not taught or restricted to one phase or taught in the most boring way possible. Like, You know, you have the exam and it's just on what date did this person die, list the names of the people who died in that battle. And, you know, it's like things that's not going to affect your life. So a few years ago, I was an Islamic history teacher at the the University IOU, uh, Dr. Bilal-Philip University. And I found that the students really enjoyed my approach to history. And I think I taught history there for about five years. And uh, alhamdulillah method that people really enjoyed uh, and since I left, like, I want to do something like what I was teaching in the university, but for the masses. And uh, along the way, I wrote my book on Omar Ibn Abdul Aziz, right? Uh, and the introduction chapter of that book is actually my my philosophy of history. So often I tell people to just buy the book for introduction because it's the introduction itself. Will just uh, it, it 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 changes your entire approach to history. Like basically spelled out my entire philosophy of history in the introduction chapter of that book. And based on that chapter, this entire course came about. Uh, this course actually came about during the lockdown. Uh, you know, we all had a lot of time in our hands in the lockdown. Yep. So I would just sit in front of my computer and record videos. And honestly, I spent 10 months recording this course, thinking about 10 or 20 people will end up watching it. That was what was in my head. I'm uh, recording right. this course, maybe 10 or 20 people are going to watch it, but at least people benefit. I put it out less than a year ago, and right now, over 700 people have have joined it up there. Wow, so uh, I think that barakah from Allah subhanahu. Wa ta'ala. I, I, yeah, it never crossed my mind as many people would join up. So the philosophy itself is, uh, I bring it down to three main points. Uh, number one, you must be honest about our history. I feel like uh, we we sugarcoat things so much. We create this this fantasy picture of Olya. You know, like everyone's mm-hmm. just Olya until World War One, and that sets up Everybody for failure, because what happens is the kid growing up thinking that everyone was Olya and everyone was pious and everything was perfect. A lot of them actually end up doubting Islam when they come across stories from real history. You know, it, it yeah. literally breaks the mind. You know, when I was teaching at university, students told me that what I was teaching them was traumatizing them. Like they, they, they were expecting all happy stories, mm-hmm. and it, it, when we came to things like Karbala and uh You know, what happened after Karbala, the name now, the the next event that happened? You know, the stage
0: when Hajjaj had been in Medina. Even
1: before that, uh, in Medina, mm -hmm. where the the army of Yazid was raping women and stuff like that in Medina. Oh, yeah. We don't talk about that event. mm, Yeah. But when I I had to teach at a university and most of my students were Muslim women, they were traumatized. They're like, how can it happen in the era of the Dabin? You know, like, yeah, and, and, and th- no one prepares you psychologically to deal with these aspects of it. Yeah, and then
0: uh, I, I was discussing this with my brother-in-law, actually, a, f- a few days ago. There, there was another event, you know, many hund- uh, hundreds of years later, how, you know, Tamerlane, Lane, uh, he, who, who was, uh, you know, he's a Sunni Muslim, and he went to yeah, war yeah. with Bayezid. And, and, and <laughs> a lot of people, they can't, they can't really, you know, handle, like, the shock of knowing that one Muslim leader literally ca- held captive another Muslim leader in a big palanquin cage from the roof and basically had him as his own prisoner. Like, that's just completely insane to people who, who grew up with this fantasy, like, uh, you know, study of Islam, where it's like, oh, every Muslim leader, were, you know, they're all friends, and, you know, they never had conflict whatsoever. So everyone was only against the kafari, for example. It just uh, is completely so, so
1: one of the things that really helped me was when I was studying at university, uh, in the first lecture, our teacher taught us, don't call this Islamic history, call it Muslim history. Right? He said, because mm-hmm. Islamic means we're learning Islam from and we learn Islam from the lives of the prophets and the Khalifa Rashidi. Whatever happens after that is normal people. You know, they they had their tests from Allah. They could be good. They could be righteous. They could be anything in between. They could be good at some points in their life, and and at for the other points in their life, they could be they could pass some tests of life and fail other tests of life. Uh, so we have to approach history understanding that these are normal people like us put into very difficult situations and. Uh, they're not always going to make the right choice. Sometimes they're going to make very wrong choices. Uh, but they were Muslims at the end of the day, so we don't curse them, even if they did some really bad things. And uh, we have to be brutally honest. We have to accept that this is not where we take our religion from. This is very important because a lot of the modernists take their religion from history. You know, Like they'll say that, oh, a certain caliph had a boyfriend, so homosexuality is fine. It doesn't work like that. If a certain caliph drank alcohol, it doesn't, doesn't make alcohol, fine, right? So yeah. you can't take Islam from history. You have to separate the two. Uh, and the third thing that I can always focus on with history is you cannot judge history by modern culture. A lot of things we take for granted today are just modern culture, like the age of people get married or the fact that there's no slavery in the world, or yes, that there's yes. no expansion of empires. This is a very recent phenomenon, less than 100 years old. So you can't judge all of history by by things that only happen in less hundred years, you know, it's it's unfair to the people who lived before that to judge them by by what's normal in our times.
0: Yeah, it's it's completely insane, you know. The, the one of the the biggest debates about about Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi when uh, you know between you know Muslim and non-Muslim people, you know, the, the people who discussed history was. Uh, you know, this whole issue of you know was he a warlord? Was he was he uh, waging these you know unjust wars against people? And you know it's like how Ill- historically illiterate do you have to be to not realize that war was literally that was literally the political language of the time, where you know it's like it's you're basically telling them oh you know you Muslims should have just stayed put and allowed the Byzantines and Persians to swallow you whole, once they yeah, realized yeah. that you were formidable uh, power. The way the way I
1: put it is I tell them that the way the world was until World War One was conquer or be conquered. Exactly. That was the way of the world. So if there was no jihad at all, if there was no uh, jihad, offensive jihad, Muslims would have been annihilated. They would have been wiped out. Uh, at, the, at the most, or, you know, the, the perhaps the best thing that could have happened if there was no jihad at all, would have been that the Persians or the Romans absorbed the Muslim world, and they became like watered-down Muslims who were like, kind of more in line with, with the rulers, right? Because everyone follows the rulers. But you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his divine wisdom, uh, knowing the way of the world and knowing what's best for this ummah. He made the first generation of Muslims, the likes of Khalid, and Walid, and Amr ibn al-As, and Uri ibn al-Khattab, people who were able to face the Roman Empire and face the, the, mm. the, 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 the Sassani Empire and take over their lands. And that was actually the best thing to happen to those lands, historically. Yeah. You know, if you look at even for the non-Muslims in, the, in those lands, uh, it was in their favor that Muslims became their rulers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, they'll, they'll look back at leaders like that, or even you know the very the the first few, you know, Ottoman sultans, and you know they'll they'll describe an absolute horror. You know how harsh they were, and you have to realize like that those times were so tumultuous and unstable that you required that kind of harshness to keep everyone together. It was you know you had for example yeah. the uh, the very first Ottomans. You know it's like you had the the crusaders from one end and the the, the the Mongols from the other, you know, what are you gonna do? You ha- you had you had to you just had to be like that. And you know you, uh,
1: did, you know our, are, our people these days though you know a lot of people who 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 criticize Muslim politicians historically are people who live very comfortable, soft lives today. Exactly and we have no idea what it's like to be in a situation where you have to choose between murdering your brother or allowing a thousand other people to be murdered. Mm-hmm. We we have never been in a situation like that. I and mean, may Allah oh. protect us from ever being in it. But these are actual cases that people in the past had had to face. Like, you know, do I kill my brother or do I allow him to 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 cause a civil war? You know, do I, you know, do I, uh, you know, burn down an entire city or do I, you know, let them invade us overnight and kill us? You know, these are situations that are beyond our imagination. But historically, yeah. these are things leaders had to face in the past. And they say you can't clean a pigsty without getting your hands dirty. And True. Politics is the, dirtiest, is the dirtiest game in the world. You know? oh, yeah. I mean, when you get involved in politics, you, you can't do it without getting your hands dirty. It reminds me of uh, Abdul Malik Ibn Marwan, the famous Umayyad caliph. He was a mufti in Medina, a very righteous mufti in Medina. And when he heard that his father died and it's his turn to be the caliph, he closed the Quran and he said, I don't think I'm going to get a chance to open you again. You know? And Ooh. he just transformed overnight from an Ali. To Azali. <laughs> yeah. like he went from from one of the ulama of Medina to somebody waging war against uh, Abdullah Ibn Zubair, and mm-hmm. when you look at it, uh, his war against Abdullah Ibn Zubair it, it solidified the Ummah under one ruler. He invented the, the first Muslim uh coins, uh, the first Muslim flag. He made Arabic the official language. He actually turned the Muslim world into an empire. By at the same time, he did some bad things to get. There. So yeah. it's just very it's very complex. You can't just take. Uh, you know, you can't just put people into boxes of black and white, and good and evil.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this leads to my next question uh, about the, you know the whole issue of caliphate succession. And you know, I remember you mentioned this during your course. You know, the uh, you know that there there was a hadith or maybe multiple hadith that, that where the Prophet sallam, said that the the his successor had to be from the tribe of Quraysh or or had to be an Arab. And, you know, a lot of people uh, took this very literally, you know, I I had this discussion with somebody uh, quite recently where they said, you know, the, for example, the Ottoman uh, caliphate wasn't really a caliphate because they weren't Arab, for example, you know, they were just Muslim rulers, they don't don't really count. You know, uh, that seems very strange to me. And it's like, if you look at it in a modern context, obviously, we don't have any existing caliphates today. And if we do in the future, we have no guarantee that they won't be uh, controlled or puppeteered the same way dictatorships today are, you know, may Allah protect us Mm -hmm. from that. But, uh, you, you know, you get into that and you, re- and you realize it's not that clear cut, you know, for example, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a-, a lot of the monarchies in the Middle East today where their families claim descendants from, you know, the original tribes that lived with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi which, you, know, you, you just know, I don't think there's any way to, uh, uh, you know, to see if that's authentic or not. That seems way too convenient to me. But, um, you know, in the future, you know, should, is this something that we should really count on as, you know, made, perhaps, you know, the next big ruler of the muslims is going to be from that be of that lineage or should we or should we depend more on the fact that whoever comes up in the future will come come about because of say the mandate to rule that they will earn through you know force or whichever which way
1: yeah so the hadith itself which states that the the, the ruler must be from the Quraysh there has historically been two interpretations of this hadith right mm-hmm. Uh, there are those who took it very literally, and you notice know, with almost any hadith, right? You have those who take it literally and those who take it contextually. And I'm generally of the camp that I look at hadith contextually, right? Uh, I think it's more the Hanafi in me that we, I, I tend to be more Ahlur Roy in my approach to hadith. So my understanding of this, hadith, and this is the understanding of many, many ulama throughout history, is that at that point in time, the Arabs were a very tribal society. And they would not have obeyed anyone who was not Quraysh, right? At the death of Rasulullah Sallallahu Wasallam, they were choosing between one of the Ansar and one of the Quraysh to be the next Caliph. And they went to the Quraysh based on this Hadith. Had the Ansar become the Khalifa as righteous as they were, the average Arab tribe would not have listened to them and followed them, simply because of the tribalism that had not been killed off yet in their hearts. And so this, this was a, a contextual statement for the time based on the realities of the political world at that time it wasn't meant to be divine instruction to be followed till the end of time rather the same prophet sallam, who told us this he also said obey your caliph even if he's an african all right even if he's from African, yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah he didn't say has to be quraishi in the hadith he said hey, whoever your caliph is obey. right mm-hmm. uh, and he said african specifically because again that community was about racist so he so he gave them the example that would make him realize listen Get rid of your racism. Whoever your caliph is, you obey him, right? Mm -hmm. And so that brings us to to the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans did not initially call themselves caliphs. When the Ottomans first came about, they were a sultanate and the Mamluks had a caliphate with them. Or or rather, the Mamluks had a caliphate through a puppet Abbasid who was living with them, (laughs) right? And it was only 200 or 300 years later when the Ottoman caliph uh, Salim the Grim or Sultan Salim the de Grim defeated the Mamluks and took over Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem, the Holy Lands. It was only at that point that, that he claimed to be the Khali- the Khalifa. Right? And that, that for me, that that uh, shows historically that people looked at the Khalifa as the people who controlled the holy lands.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Because as long as the Ottoman Empire was everywhere else besides the Holy Lands, they were looked upon as the Sultanate, like the like the Mughals and the Delhi Sultanate and everybody else. They were these weren't Khalifas. It's always throughout history, the, the Khalifa always controlled the, 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 the three Harams, uh, as, as we call them today. So the Khalifa in the future, can uh, can in my view, can be anybody. And my analysis of history is that this, you know, f- firstly, I believe history always repeats itself. We go through cycles. So we had the rise of the Arab Muslim empire, the Croatian Muslim empire. Uh, and that lasted 600 years and it collapsed. Then there was like 100 years of instability. Then we had the rise of the Turkish Muslim empire that lasted for 600 years and it collapsed. And now we are in the middle of 100 years of political instability. Mm-hmm. If history repeats itself, a third caliphate should come about during our lifetime. And it can come from a different part of the world
0: altogether. Right? That yeah, is no, the order it's, of Allah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's all, it's all fair game. And now uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the Ottomans, which uh, I, th- I think for most people who study Islamic history, they find the Ottoman period most fascinating to them. Um, you know, they, they had their obviously incredible military history, which at one point was one of the greatest, pretty much the greatest superpower of the East. You know, they ruled vast swaths of, you know, Southern and Central uh, Europe. You know, they, 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 they valued the arts and high Islamic culture and all this. Uh, but so, at some point uh, after Suleiman the Magnificent's reign, the empire began to slow with devastating decline. Uh, personally, I think the decline started the very minute he married Harim. But, you know, I'm pretty sure you have your own views on that. And uh, one, of the main, one of the main culprits, I think this was the most significant, was the rejection of the printing press. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you read, the, I think, the main article that pops up. Uh, I think it's the Muslim Matters article about the printing press that, um, that came out. Yeah. And, you know, we, we know how, how catastrophic that was in retrospect. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, like, what, what are your thoughts on the why do you think it was rejected in the first place? Because it just seems completely absurd. You know, I've heard that um, it was some of the different scholars of the time or that there were different parties or factions who just hated it. You know, I, I heard that the calligraphers of the time, who, you know, pretty much had a whole monopoly on the writing of books, just hated the printing press because, you know, it, it pretty much destroyed their business. But uh, mm-hmm. tell me, what do you think?
1: Okay, there's so many angles to analyze this from, but uh, mm-hmm. just, just to give the, the, the listeners some context. So what happened was the Muslims were the, the global superpower for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And they always were technologically ahead of the rest of the world until, you know, the one point where it seems to change is when, when the West invented the printing press. Uh, because at that point, the Muslim world did not, uh, uh, get, uh, did not uh, adapt the printing press until 200 years later. And during those two hundred years, the Europeans printed, you know, I only know what number to put of books, right? Uh, like they began to mass produce knowledge in a way that could not be done by hand. And the Renaissance took place, and all of this took place, and, and the whole European world completely changed. And after that, from that point on, with the rest of Ottoman history, they are playing catch up with Europe, and they and they could never catch up. I mean. Honestly, I think if they won World War I, they would have caught up because they were in a middle of a revival at that time. But it was a Allah that Muslims lost World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, this is the beginning of the downfall. So what happened, uh, there's again many theories, but just to put in context of what we see in the Muslim world today, we do have amongst some segments of the Muslim world today, people who are averse to technologies, to new technologies. And whenever a new technology is invented, they declare it haram. Right. Uh, during my lifetime, I have seen this. Right. So when I was a child, I remember everybody said videos are haram. You know? Oh, yeah. And the same ulama who used to say videos are haram have their own TV shows. now. You
0: know? yeah. They have
1: lectures on TV and we are playing catch up when it comes to media, because for 50 years we debated whether TV is haram instead of starting our own TV studios from day one. It was the same with the radio. It's the same with the Internet. Whenever new technology is invented, we spend fifty to one hundred years arguing over whether it's haram or not, and we fall behind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also, um, there was a brother recently; he passed away. Uh, brother Muhammad Sharif, he was the founder of a Maghreb Institute. Allah, yes, yes. I I had no idea who this guy was, but you know, I saw Yasser Qadi's video, uh, video where uh, you know he gave a khater and, and you know talked talked a lot about who he was and. When I saw that, you know, I, it was pretty much exactly this. You know, he was somebody who studied in, in Medina and he had this vision that, you know, there was a way to modernize, you know, the education of Islam and, you know, bring it over to the West. And, you know, there was, he yeah. met so much criticism and pushback from it. And, you know, those exact people that criticized him are pretty much doing the same exact things now that he was to teach their yeah, students.
1: Exactly. So you won't know it because you're like probably two or three years old when he started Al Mok. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's why you don't realize what, what, what the Muslim world was like back then. But honestly, most of what we see today for educational methods in the West, like how we talk, how how we design our programs, the way we use technology, he was the first guy to do that, and he faced a lot of criticism for doing that. Right? Ah, uh, now we take it for granted twenty years later. But some, but but he he was the first one to do that. Alhamdulillah, I accepted from him. Uh, I mean, actually had intention to to fly up to Dubai and meet him later this year because we had never met in person. Like, I literally was with one of his friends in Istanbul three weeks ago, and he was telling me about you know the journey the two of them had together like two months ago. And I told him, You know, I haven't met him yet. I need to go to Dubai and meet him. And he said, Inshallah, I must go later this year. Wow. <laughs>
0: well, so, Allah. maybe,
1: uh, Skadarullah. Yeah,
0: yeah. I you know, yeah, love Mercy on yeah.
1: him. I mean, yeah. I mean, but you know, this is again, you go back then and there were voices like that at that time. But what, what happened with the Ottoman Empire? A lot of people aren't aware of this, but the Ottoman Empire in the later years, ijtihad actually became uh illegal right it was actually illegal to do ijtihad to to the level that uh, if you study the last hundred years of the Ottoman Empire they were actually secret societies doing ijtihad and if they were found out they would be arrested and sent to jail so it it, it, at that point the ummah had hit a level of stagnation in knowledge where it was just blind following Mm. like just complete following like you cannot come up with a new idea at all. Like the Ummah had completely stagnated intellectually. Now, what led to that, there are many theories. Uh, I think it's a many, many different events. It's just the fact that the Ummah was over a thousand years old and uh, nothing, nobody stays on top forever, right? Everyone goes through the decline period. Uh, it took longer for Muslims than anybody else because Allah put barakah in our empires. But eventually the decline happened. And the intellectual decline i really believe it was linked to closing the doors of htihad and right till today we have these arguments so for example i live in a community uh, of very strict hanafis who believe that uh, it, the doors of htihad are still closed and they are unable to deal with contemporary issues because they are not trained in htihad they, they declare everything new or haram uh, they don't know how to handle modern technology and htihad not only is it, ne- uh, is it something that's important? It, in our time it's necessary because new things are invented every day, new circumstances are invented every day. How do we how do we make fatwas for something completely new that never existed fifty years ago? If 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 we don't have shahids amongst us,
0: yeah. Absolutely. So this,
1: this is this is this this is really what happened in the Ottoman Empire, and we're still seeing <laughs> the ripple effects of that today.
0: Yeah, and and uh, th- this um. You know, my next question about the Ottomans it actually has to do a lot more with the, the, the military aspect of it, you know, the, the Janissaries. You know, for yeah. most of the rule, they were, you know, they were a warrior slave class of some of the most brutal elite soldiers I've ever seen at the time. You know, we know of, our, of their prowess are, are ourselves and, you know, how, just how effective they were. But, you know, even if when you read uh, the Christian historians uh, of the time and, you know, they, they write in absolute horror what it was like to see the Janissaries pouring over the walls of Constantinople, you know, when Mohammed yeah. II conquered it. And really, just, they really were the, the, the most elite, uh, efficient uh, band of, of warriors at the time and one of the most exemplary, you know, examples of warrior culture in Islamic history. But then, you know, you, you zoom ahead like 300, 400 years later and they turn into this slovenly, you know, like um, political class of elites who, who maintain their positions not through their masculine virtue in battle, but through their pensions. Through you know their their political influence, and you know yeah. uh, I'm sure we all know about you know the Janissary revolts, or and you know when uh, when the khalifa tried to uh, cut off their pensions, and you know when they were, when they were overthrowing, literally oh, literally overthrowing the khalifa and saying you're the khalifa instead, you know put his cousin or his nephew there instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about that as well. You know how how did such a decline happen? What made them so inferior and useless later when they were this magnificent force just a few hundred years prior?
1: Yeah, So I think one of the things that, that we can learn from this and that we must recognize on this is that every idea has a life cycle, right? Mm-hmm. And anything that's a good idea at one point in time becomes outdated at another point in time. And what happened with the with, with the Janus series is that it was a good idea in the beginning, but you know I think around the time of Suleiman the Magnificent, that's when you should have ended it. That's when you should, okay, we don't need Janus series anymore. Let's come up with a new system. Mm-hmm. But I, I think they stuck with the system for too long until it was completely outdated. You know, it, it, it reached a point where, uh, like, it, I mean, when the Janissaries first started, and for those who don't know who the Janissaries were, so basically what the early Ottomans would do is, they would take boys from Christian villages as slaves, and raise them in the uh, Ottoman palaces as uh, as Muslims. And these S- uh, slave Muslims would be 100% loyal to the Ottomans. They had no other loyalties. They had no tribal loyalties. They had no family loyalties. You know, All they know is the Ottoman palace and, and this lifestyle that they raised with. So this was an army that was like 100% loyal to its owner. Right? And at that time, that was a revolutionary idea because the main cause of, of empires breaking around that point in history was the fact that everybody had their own political... Mm-hmm. Uh, aspirations. Everybody had their own uh, allegiances and tribal allegiances. So you'd have like, uh, like if, if 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 you hired an army, and that army was like a different tribal race, they may try to overthrow you so they could be power. So the Ottoman's idea was, you know, put all of this aside. We're raising our army for birth. <laughs> but these guys are trained for one purpose only, and that's to serve the king. And so they were the most loyal of armies, they were the most powerful of armies at that time. I mean, right to today, the Janissaries are known historically as, as this amazing army. Like when I play the video game Civilization, you know, yeah. I like to use Suleiman the Magnificent because these Janissary corps in that game are like OP. Like oh yeah. <laughs> <you can't touch laughs> yeah. Them. They're like like they <laughs> march into a city, the city's it's over. You know? Yeah, it's, it's just it's so, done. Yeah. And it's ex- done because the, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, go on. Because that, that's how they were, right? They, they, they were, historically, that's how they were. It's the same in the age of empires. When you use the Turks and you have your Janissary your Genes- corps, they were like way over, uh, overpowered. But now you fast forward a few hundred years, and many things are happening. Number one, uh, the Janissaries are, have a very luxurious lifestyle. And you know this is a point I mentioned a lot that you know uh, soft times create soft men. I mentioned yes. this throughout the history. And this happens with the janissaries later on as well. That uh, they get too comfortable in their positions and they start taking it for granted. And as you said, they become lazy. But there's also another thing that happens. Uh, the The Western world at that point had come up with new ideas for armies. Uh, the idea of 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 paid soldiers, of of a, of a of a trained military. You know, like you know nowadays we take it for granted that every country has this military. Like you can go and have a career in the military, and you can apply for a job there and get paid a salary. But this was a very recent thing he started. Yeah. You know, for the bulk of history, uh, militaries were made up of like, you know, they, again, every country was different. But like for some countries, it would literally be like if a city's under attack, all the men could have their weapons and go and fight. Right. Or you'd hire a gang of mercenaries. Like this is what Yazid used to do. You know, he used to hire gangs of mercenaries. That's why his army was so barbaric. Uh, you know, and, and it, it wasn't until like maybe 400 or 500 years ago that Europe really developed a very, uh, uh, what's the word for it? They developed an army that was very motivated financially and at, at the same time, very disciplined. And they attracted a lot of strong uh, individuals into their military system. And that military system that the European countries had developed at that time was superior to the Janissary system. Mm-hmm. So the Ottomans, instead of seeing okay, a new system has been invented, that's better, let's adapt it and Islamize it. They're like, no, this is what we've been doing forever. This is what we're going to keep doing
0: forever. Yeah, they doubled down. right?
1: Exactly. And that led to more rebellions. It led to more problems. It led to uh, hundreds of years of civil war. By the time they came up with the idea, okay, let's get rid of the Janissary corps and have a paid army, they're 200 years behind. (laughs) And now it's playing catch up with the rest of the world. Yeah. Same story in every part of the Empire. You know, whether we're talking about uh, the printing press or the army or or the... Islamic studies or whatever it is, you'll see the same story happens in every part of, of the Ottoman Empire.
0: Yeah, I you know this thing you mentioned earlier about how you know they, they were slaves who were detached from really any any semblance of let's say a family or or their former religion and such. This was something I actually realized quite a few days ago when I was thinking about this exact thing, which is you know when you take a, a child. Out of that environment, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not growing up in a a loving uh, family home with a mother and a father who's working, who they and they get to witness this normal life, and you know, it's not like uh, today where you know a a kid has a a regular life and says, you know, I'm going to join the military, and it becomes like this jobs program. You know, for the for the Janissaries, you know, this might be an extreme comparison, but you know, there's so there's something that happens when you take a a child out of there, and I'm I'm kind of getting to know the psychology of it, is that. You, you remove any semblance of not just uh, different loyalties, but any semblance of restraint. You know, there's a, there's yeah. a certain mercy that you, you develop when you grew up in a loving home. That's like, you know, I, I'm going I'm to follow orders, but I'm not going to go as far, you know, that far. You know, I'm not going to do the unimaginable. But the Janissaries were able yeah. to do the unimaginable because they, didn't ha- they no longer remembered what it was like to live normally their entire if, lives was if, just, if just... If I can use like a life. pop
1: culture analogy, or I don't know if it's a good idea for me to use pop culture analogies, but like uh the way I look at it, it's like in Superman, if you look at General Zod and writers uh-huh. characters like him, they were raised from birth to do, to be military individuals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you watch the movie, General Zod is like, I don't know how to do anything else. All I know is fighting for my people and defending my people, even exactly. if it means massacring an entire country. That's what I was raised to do you know that he says this and when you think about it the janissaries had a very similar upbringing that from the time they're a child they're raised for one purpose only that this is your empire you fight for them you die for them you do whatever it is for them there is they don't know any other life i mean it's sad but it is what it is historically worked at that time
0: yeah i also read that you know they weren't even allowed to have hobbies growing up you know they'd see if a janissary child was playing with a toy they'd slap it out of his hands like no you know, your your only purpose yeah, it, is the swords.
1: <laughs> you know, when, when you talk about things like this historically, we're not saying it's 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 Islamic. We're not saying it's right. We're just saying historically, this is what happened, and for the time, it worked. Exactly. so well, whether it's right or wrong, that was a discussion for the ulama of that time. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that leads that leads into a whole discussion that's beyond the scope of this. Um, you know this talk of you know what 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 makes a good soldier and how you can you can reorganize the military in the modern world with what exists today to actually have that kind of discipline but you know that that's that's far beyond what we need to talk about you know and one of my favorite uh you know my next question my favorite part of your approach to you know to teaching history is your absolute refusal and you mentioned this you know refusal to gloss away from the distasteful bits of our history know, among those is you know the issue of slavery you know just as the case with the majority of human history that People have to criticize the Muslims for, for what, the, what they did. But, you know, the, pretty much everyone else at the time, the lowest case was not, you know, the, just the worker who, you know, who, pay, who, who gave, who gave you know, a share of his crop to, his, to, his, to, his, to his, the lord of his house or whatever. No, it was actually much worse. They used to have slaves who had pretty much no autonomy over themselves or, or their children or, or, you know, their ability to marry and so, and so on and so forth. And uh, there's a book I, I, w- I was reading recently called, uh, by Thomas Sowell uh it was it was called black rednecks and white liberals and he described he just ran over the entire history of, uh, of slavery throughout um not not just in the united states but also in, in the muslim world and in asia and you know he destroyed a lot of misconceptions but he also uh went over and you know he makes this claim and i wanted to see whether you agree with it or whether you disagree was that the muslim world did not let go of slavery which you know, in comparison, and everyone knows this, slavery in the Islamic world was nowhere near as horrific as it was, as the transatlantic slavery was here in the, in the United States. You know, a, you know, a few decades before the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, uh, he makes the claim that you know it was only when they were coerced by Western powers. They, for example, you know, the British were threatening the Ottomans and saying, you know, if you if you don't abolish slavery, then we're gonna sink your ships in the Mediterranean. And it was only then that the Ottomans decided, okay, fine, we'll we'll get rid of it. This was, extre- this was like extremely recent in the late 1800s. So yeah. I want to ask you on your, th- your thoughts about that, and, you know, this extreme shift, and you know, whether it was really that. Because in my view, it seems that you know, it, it didn't require what the United States required. You know, this this gigantic war that killed however however many thousands of people. I think is one of most still to this day the Amer- American Civil yeah. War is one of the most devastating wars in American history. You know, the Muslim world didn't require that. I mean, I did read of a few revolts, but I I don't think it was anything that serious. So uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Okay, so the first thing I want to do is recommend a book, right? Slavery and Islam by Dr. Jonathan Brown from Yakin Institute. This is the best book I've read on this topic. It's like, I think 500 or 600 pages. And he just goes into like all the details to show how different it was, right? He gives a lot of historical reports of exactly what life was like for slaves in the Muslim world. Uh, I, I found the book amazing, I, I love the book, I, I, I read it more than once, uh, mm-hmm. and I recommend it to anyone who's, who's, who's struggling with this topic, so let's, this topic would be a whole podcast, soon, but yeah, let me yeah. just try and get into a few key points, right, I know that the topic of slavery is a very touchy topic for Muslims, especially in the USA, mm-hmm. right, because you're growing up in a culture where the, the slavery history of that country is the worst in human history. And yeah. that's the only slavery history you growing up with, and you assume that the rest of the world was the same. This is a big problem. A lot of youngsters growing up in America, they assume just as slavery in America was, that's what the Muslim world had. That's what the Chinese world had. That's what everyone else had. And that's not true. Rather, most people across the world at that time we're shocked at how Americans treated their slaves. Mm-hmm. Because that's not how the rest of the world treated them. Right? They still saw them as human beings. They still had human rights and sense, right? Now, and one of the things that Dr. Brown gets into in the book is that even the word slavery itself, it's very hard to define. So for example, today we say slavery is abolished, right? But in my view, the American prison system where people are working in for-profit prisons and the prisons are making money, but the prisoners are not. I mean, That's slavery. I mean, it is slavery. What's going on in China is slavery, right? Uh, With the Uyghur Muslims and things like that. They're essentially slaves. Uh, To say that it it doesn't exist today is uh, naive. It's not knowing what's going on in the world. What's going on in the world today with human trafficking is that slavery is now an underground thing where governments have no control. So only the worst type of slavery happens. (laughs) Uh Like like in the Muslim world, if people own slaves, and if somebody slapped that slave, that slave could go to the judge and the judge would give it grant granted freedom.
0: Exactly. And, and, you know, I today just, you I, don't have,
1: today if somebody gets kidnapped and taken as a slave, who do you go to for
0: help? Exactly. I just started to interrupt. Also, I, I I forgot where I read this also, but it was uh, uh, Muslim slavery. It was not only, you know, uh, Extremely advanced and you know pro- you know progressive. I, I hate this word, but you know I have to use it here. Uh, relative to say American slavery, but it was even uh, we treat you know Muslims of the time treated their slaves much better than surrounding civilizations in the ancient world. You know, I, I there was. There used to be travelers from, let's say, Rome or, or Persia who would come, and they would be absolutely shocked how how you know the, they, they thought the slaves were very arrogant. You know, they would they would go to their master and say, "Hey, you know, you're giving me too much work," or you know, "I don't like this work you're doing me." And then the master would actually try and negotiate with them. Like, okay, well, would you prefer to do something else and something like this? Yeah, because there's a hadith for that. It's yeah, a yeah.
1: That. The Prophet said, "They just slaves are your brothers. You not overwork them, feed them mm-hmm. from what you from you eat, clothing from what you wear." This is a hadith, and this mm-hmm. is and and the Muslims took this hadith to heart. You know, first thing I want to mention is that slavery was a, you know, I, I like the point that Dr. Brown makes in the book, that slavery went away not because of morality, but because of technology. You know, yeah. that whatever slaves used to do in the past, our technology does for us today. And, you know, if this technology did not exist, uh, human beings were making all kinds of excuses to own other human beings. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I just had this conversation someone earlier today. There are a lot of these westerners who think that slavery is in of itself evil. If they had the chance to enslave Muslims from
0: the Muslim world, they would suddenly come up with moral justifications. Absolutely, them. yes. Yeah, that, that, I, I 100% agree with that.
1: Yeah, they and, would uh, because the, their morality is very flimsy. It changes based on what suits them, right? Yeah, and so yeah. they would say something like, "Oh, we need to enslave them, keep them in in liberal households, so they can become cultured, they can overcome their uh, barbaric nature." You know, so we're doing it for their good. They'll come up with some kind of idea. Like yeah, this, I, know, right? I know. quite a
0: few figures too in the in the media whom I, I won't name, but I, I just know those exact types who are, who are foaming at the mouth for that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, I mean, it, the people who talk on these topics tend to be very hypocritical, uh, and I don't believe that you know when they say they find immoral, I don't believe that because their idea of what's moral and immoral changes every day. Had there to be a world war in the future. And a situation comes where you have to choose. Okay, let me let me just take a step back here. Why did Muslims have slaves? When you conquered a city full of enemies in those days, you had three three choices or four choices, right? Number mm-hmm. one, let them go, in which case they're gonna come back to fight you. Number two, imprison the entire city. Not mm-hmm. practical, right? Number four, number three, execute the entire city. Would you have preferred that? Or number four, absorb them into your households as slaves.
0: Yeah, see, right? They again- become
1: prisoners of war who live in your home, eat from what you eat, wear what, what, what you wear, you don't overwork them, and they can buy their freedom. That's the thing don't exactly. forget. They, they, Islamic they, slavery, you can buy your freedom.
0: You're giving them a chance, essentially, to, to earn their way back to a decent life.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't just like, you know, like when American slavery ended, people were left poor, right? And they were left mm-hmm. in these very poor conditions. In the Muslim world, because of this system, People became free when they were financially independent, when they had a source of income. Mm-hmm. So they weren't people, the people who were becoming free weren't poor. They were actually doing very well in life before they even became free because Islam gave them, you know, a, a way out that was dignified, that that that, that took them, that elevated their lives.
0: Uh-huh. You know, I, I had this tweet uh, uh you know quite a while ago. It got quite a quite a lot of pushback. A lot of people didn't like it, but, but I knew I say this in a bit of a joking manner i said that you know a, 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 a concubine in say of the muslim world of many hundreds of years ago probably enjoyed a better standard of living than you know the so called independent woman who were who works a slave wage job in the city and lives in a in a 500 square foot apartment i don't know <laughs> i mean uh, have have you seen the Suleiman The magnificent tv tv series uh, i have um, i have not um I, it, it's not very one,
1: halal yeah, oh I, are, you very halal. The, are you talking about
0: are you talking about the era magnificent
1: century no, the the Turkish oh. one,
0: right? Oh, yeah. Yes, Magnific- yes. I think I know.
1: Magnificent that. Century. Uh, I wouldn't say it's very halal, but uh, it's it's more about his relationship with his concubines. Mainly his relationship with. Kerem. Yes,
0: I think it's I think it's a rom- more of a romance drama. I think a lot of women... yeah, yeah, uh, a lot yeah of, it is. Uh, but when you that watch show.
1: that, you see just how spoiled the concubines were.
0: Yeah, they were basically <laughs> uh, treated like
1: <laughs> like like queens. You know, they, yeah. they they had these huge luxurious rooms, the best of clothes, the best of foods, like.
0: You know, like these were village girls who were like living in a palace. Yeah, yeah, it's um really subhanallah how that turned out. Okay, um, my next question. Uh, this I, I I know this might feel like we're going going back a bit. Um, you know, we talked a lot about you know how Muslims today are living in this in this horrible dark age, which I don't think anyone can really dispute that. But you know, when you look back in history, the way Europe escaped its dark ages, and you know, I, I had this debate quite a few times with people who who don't buy this argument and. Really, it's like all the evidence is there. You just have to really just have to look for it. it was, uh, Europe was able to escape its dark age with a lot of help from, you know, scientific and liter- literary work from, you know, Islamic empires. And I think we could agree that, you know, um, you know, I think we're already open over this, but I, I, I want to ask you, uh, will we escape it in a similar way, but, you know, from the opposite end? And, you know, I, I had the speculation and I don't think uh, I generated that much discussion over it. So I wanted to bring it up. Will in will we climb out of having borrowed from what the West accomplished in their great ascendance over the past 300 years? You know, should we learn from how they were able to come out of their their horrible times, or is all that nonsense? We should slowly solely just depend on on each other and ourselves and what we can accomplish. Because, my, in my personal opinion, I think it's worth studying. You know, a lot of the Western canon, figuring out what made them so capable and how they how they sadly were able to dis- destroy and, and you know turn us into back to back to rubble after so many hundreds of years and you know maybe perhaps maybe use some of that uh, some of that uh, knowledge to actually you know and, and obviously take what is halal and you know leave everything that's haram and figure out how to and figure out for our people how to get them back to a decent standard of you know not not just a a big political standing but just a decent standard of living
1: yeah yeah so <sighs> I really don't have an answer for for what it's going to take for us to get back on top. But I will say this much. Every civilization that is formed is built upon the backs of the civilizations that came before it. Mm. You can't divorce yourself entirely from, from uh, from that history, right? Like even the Muslim civilization absorbed a lot of the political and cultural elements of the Byzantium and the Persian empires, for sure. It wasn't like... It didn't just come up in a vacuum, like when they conquered the Roman lands, they learned from the Romans, you know, how do you administer a country, how do you collect taxes, you know, how do you have a postal system, how do you have a navy, they learned all this and they absorbed it, even though this was Roman knowledge, this is how the Roman Empire uh, existed, and this is something we're going to have to do, is figure out from, from the countries that, that have risen up in the past 200 years, what's the good that we can take from them, and what's the evil we need to, 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 to ignore, so they did, they, they were, they were, there are definitely things they've done that, that, that the Muslim world needs to replicate. Uh, for example, advancements in technology, right? I, I'm, you know, whenever people ask me about Muslim countries and, you know, they say this country is too modern or I always say like, modern can mean something good or bad. Like if you're saying a Muslim country has beautiful tall buildings and uh, it has great te- uh, technology and great transportation systems and I'm all for modernity when it comes to all of that. But if you're saying modernity means it has feminism and it has liberalism and it has homosexuality, then oh, no, yes, you don't want any yes. of that. So this word yeah, modernity yes. can mean two different things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need modernity in terms of technology and in terms of transportation systems and military. And in all those areas, the Muslim world has to modernize to catch up and overtake the rest of the world. It's mm-hmm. necessary, right? And this is really, you know, uh, what probably... Uh, The biggest challenge for the Muslim world today is trying to figure out which aspects of modernity we are allowed to take. And we're seeing the Muslim world flip-flopping on this, right? Uh, A good example is what's happening in in Saudi at the moment, where they went from one extreme to the other. (laughs) Uh, To find that middle part, uh, okay, this is halal modernity, let's take it. This is haram modernity, let's abandon it. People don't seem to be doing that. I don't know why, but people just seem to think in extremes. It's either all haram or all halal, you know?
0: Yeah, there's no such so, thing as a, as a, you, know, a wasaltia, you know, no, like, middle yeah, path. There's it's, no nuance. There's no uh, nuance
1: in, in how yeah. we handle things. And for any culture or in the world, you can take good from it. I mean, you can learn environmentalism from the West. That's mm-hmm. a good thing to adapt from them, right? Uh, you, you can learn, uh, you know, from the Western world, uh, you know, uh, how to run a modern economy efficiently, right? You can learn these things. And then adapt it into an Islamic uh, worldview by like, for example, removing the riba from the system and replacing it with something else. You know, So you can take good from them. And I think that's going to be necessary for the Ummah moving forward. Now, here's the thing. We, we are at a point in history, I don't believe we're at the darkest point in history. I don't. I think that was 50 years ago. right? From World mm-hmm. War I till about 50 years ago, I think that was the darkest point in Muslim history. If you compare the Muslim world today to 50 years ago, there are more Muslims in the world. There are more practicing Muslims in the world? Islamic knowledge is more freely available. There's a revival of Islamic knowledge. There's more Islamic organizations, more Islamic institutes. There are more Muslim countries doing well financially. Uh, there are more Muslim countries that have good uh, infrastructure and, 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 and good transportation systems. Uh, the Ummah has done a, a, a lot of good recovery in the past 15 years. This, this is the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like my grandmother told me when, when, when she was young, when Allah was young, she passed away last year. She told me when she was young, you wouldn't find any Muslim woman who wore hijab, mm-hmm. and she told me we didn't even know until we were thirty that gambling was haram.
0: Yeah, That's how I mean, Muslims were. yeah, I know, I know from experiences as, as well. You know, uh, my mother's son, my mother, my mother's from Syria, and she used to tell me that when she was when she was growing up, when she was a teenager, you know, uh, girls' schools it didn't allow them to wear the hijab. Yeah. Yeah, and you know so things I, are
1: changing for the better Things yeah. are changing And we have to see the positive And make shukr for the positive Because If you are grateful, Allah will give you more
0: yes. So we
1: are grateful for all the good that happened in the past 50 years Allah will give us more Now what I'm seeing happening is uh, A revival in terms of knowledge A revival in terms of practicing Islam A revival in terms of number of Muslims To such an extent that even non-Muslims are saying By 2050, Muslims will be the majority of people on earth right? Because yeah. Muslims are growing in number. The only thing missing, the only thing missing, and this is one of the, perhaps the most important thing, right, but this will probably come last, is a political revival. That's, That's what's missing.
0: Yeah, you see, and I, th- I think there's a reason for that. You know, you, you can't get a political re- revival unless you work on all the other things beforehand.
1: Yeah, and, and unless the society is ready for it, it's not going to work, because we've seen what happened, for example, in Egypt. they tried a political revival before the people were ready for it and unfortunately you know the coup happened and you know egypt lost its chance to to be that bastion of revival Mm -hmm. uh the only country today where i think there's some hope at the moment might be turkey but even there it's touch and go Uh, maybe malaysia indonesia that part of the world there's some hope for the revival happening there but what's happening is we're not having the right discussions this is why i'm really happy to see recently Uh, groups like the Umatics form. you know, these these groups are actually talking about politics and caliphate system and what would it look like in the future and how would we go about it? I think these are the conversations we need to start having now, right? So the conversation on what would a caliphate look like in the 21st century? How would it interact with with the non-Muslim countries? How would it interact with the global economy? You know, uh, you know, what aspects of the Sharia would we have to adapt and which aspects would be withhold for the future? You know, it's, again, this is something that a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. Some country doesn't have to adapt 100% of the Sharia on, on the go. You know, like there are times you can say, okay, this is part of the Sharia. By this point in time, you know, we, we're not ready. Other people are not ready for it or, you know, the harms may be more than the good or it's less of two evils to leave it for later. Right? Mm-hmm. You have to have a very gradual revival. You can't go overnight from nothing to everything.
0: Yeah, and I people, people are ready are, for that. Yeah, most people are extremely impatient when it comes to that. You, you know, uh, a real a real Sharia system, that's something that's built from the ground up. It's not something that you overshadow people with and try and crush them with, which sadly we've...
1: I mean, we've seen this happen. We've seen yeah, happen, yeah exactly. for example, in say. Syria and things. When people try to force a hardcore extreme understanding of the Sharia on society, it never works. It never works. Society will crumble, they will rebel, they'll be looting, they'll be rioting, they'll be coups. It's yep. not going to work. It has to be organic, it has to be natural. It has to come from the younger generation uh, having an internal revival of Islam. That's where it has to come from. When Mm -hmm. you have a generation of youngsters who grow up loving Islam and and growing up practicing Islam, they will vote for a president who is more Islamic, right? And then that president may have a chance to maybe abolish democracy and and replace it with a caliphate system or something. like. I don't know. I'm just coming
0: up yeah. with ideas but yeah that, that, th- that might, that that's might be a bold move but yes you know I've uh, I've completely lost my faith in any sort of uh you know democracy the way it exists now so yeah that, that would be something that was something very interesting to see but uh yeah and, um you know we actually ended up having a lot more more time than I expected because you know we're, we're you know we're, just, we're jumping from one topic to the other I wanted to ask you about this because um yeah I, I actually don't have this written down but I just had to ask because I, I uh, quite a while ago I wrote an article on my Substack about you know the history of dueling between men mm-hmm. you know as a as a as a social practice and yeah, well, you know obviously if i'm gonna be writing about something like that i want to i want to find out how it was practiced in the muslim world but then when i when i when i looked it up and i tried to do my own research i realized that there wasn't as much you know of a of a background to it as it was for let's say the rest of europe for example where it was extremely custom for say you whenever you had a dispute with a man to challenge him to a duel you know this yeah. it didn't even have to be a lethal duel it could have been just uh, first blood for example yeah and I, so I want to ask you about that because you're, you're a Muslim historian. You're the, the most educated I've, I've been able to have this kind of uh, one-on-one conversation with so far. Um, what? What? Because really, the only dueling that we, uh, our most infamous case, uh, cases of dueling actually happened. Uh, you know, it was the Mubarizun in the uh, time of the seerah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in during wars. Mm-hmm. You know, against yeah. non-Muslims, and you know that that was. I think one of my favorite aspect, aspects of the seerah is actually reading about those yeah, but yeah I want to ask you what was were there ever points in Islamic history where uh it it was custom for say se, to settle disputes that way for you know for men to do that
1: I don't think so I don't think so firstly mm-hmm. I don't recall any point in history where it was like that and I think the main reason why is that the sharia gave people very clear pathways in how to deal with problems oh ah, i see right right so for example in in a muslim country we don't have a vigilante justice system. Now you've got a problem with someone, you go to the Qadi and, and he has both sides and you know, he comes up with a solution, you know? So, and we have, we've always encouraged Muslim interaction with each other being peaceful. And Muslims are brothers, you know, for us <laughs> peace between mm-hmm. your brothers. Don't encourage them to shoot each other and, or stab each other, right? Yeah. So uh, even in worst case scenarios where there's a murder, the Quran, it makes it very clear. The family decides if the murderer gets executed. But in the same verse, the Quran says, if you forgive your brother, it's better for mm-hmm. you. Even in the case of a murder, Allah says, forgive him is better. It's still your brother in Islam. So, you know, our, our whole approach is very different, right? Our approach was like preservation of life is one of the causes of, of the Sharia. So we wouldn't have allowed a system where a, a citizen could take the life of another citizen. This isn't something that, that would have Islamically been allowed.
0: Yeah. Now, you see, I thought of this, but I, I didn't really, I guess I didn't complete that thought process. But yeah, that's actually very extremely interesting how, you know, you, I get, I guess it's just the testaments to how much more clear cut and advanced, uh, you know, the, the Islamic law system was. In, in yeah, you also world. have to remember
1: on that point that the Muslim system had an innocent, proven guilty system. Yeah. You know, we had the concept of witnesses, we had very clear punishments. Uh, the christian world didn't have all of that the christian world had was very frustrating and you didn't take the law into your own hands in those days mm-hmm. uh, most likely nothing was going to get done
0: yeah i mean there's a there's a movie i think you should check out it's called uh, it's a it's a very old i think it was um i forgot which year it was made it's, it's a ridley scott movie uh called the duelists and it's about these two french soldiers during the time of napoleon who you know they spend the next i think 10 20 years of their lives du- dueling it out just just uh just completely trying to massacre each other each time and the and you know it, it reaches a point where you know they forget the original reason why they started dueling in the first place. So it just becomes this insanity rave of yeah. of them tr- of trying to fight yeah. for their own honor. I think his you latest know.
1: movie was also about the duel, right? His latest movie was the last duel.
0: Yes, the last duel. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. Actually, but I that was, my, uh, was
1: more his. That was actually a historical story. Yeah.
0: Yes, that was a historical was, story. Uh, but uh, yeah. I have my own opinions about that movie. You know, uh, I, yeah. I, I wasn't yeah. as I wasn't as big as a fan of that as I was of the of the duel. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I don't really watch that much movie, but I read about all of this just mm-hmm. to, to to know. What, especially if it's about history, I I like to read about it just to know uh, how history is being portrayed in movies. Like Ridley Scott did make Kingdom of Heaven, so I'll always be happy for that.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, that was really one of the more incredible Have you ever seen The the 13th Warrior? Uh, No, I don't think I've seen it. okay yeah it was that was also a really great movie which you know sadly they made quite a few you know very weird mistakes not with like theology but like it's 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 kind of obvious they didn't do as much research as they should it's about about they basically take the story of ahmed ibn fadlan the explorer and they make it as if you know he was a soldier who joined these vikings on an expedition to save this village in ukraine and you know, uh, overall, it was a really great movie. But you know, there was this one scene which I absolutely loved. You know, this is going to lead into my, my final question about you know Muslim representation in media, where he actually teaches a Viking king how to write "La Ilaha Illallah" in his own language. Oh, it was, it was very it was very nice. To sure. But you know, I, you okay. you know, most people they don't they don't know about this movie. And um, actually, wait, wait, uh, Just give me just give me one moment. Okay. Uh, okay, Salikum. We're back. Yeah, sorry for that interruption. Okay, uh, so something I want, another thing I wanted to bring up, you know, the, you know, my, my final question, actually, I think we should just get to this. Um, you know, I spoke to, I asked this question to Mehdi Lock, and I expect this question for a few, uh, for future guests as well. We talk a lot as Muslims in foreign lands about building the par- parallel structures for ourselves, you know, com- competing with other communities, securing ourselves socially and economically. But as a friend told me recently, um, another big avenue we're missing is that of entertainment, me- entertainment and media outlets. We have many different attempts at Muslim created, you know, shows and movies and some good, some extremely bad. And, you know, it's not that well done, you know, as it was done recently, sadly. But uh, so as someone who's very versed in history as yourself, what would you say is the most important thing Muslim creators like me who make, you know, books, art, movies, TV shows that include our traditions must keep in heart and mind as we engage in this? You know, because I'll actually... Actually, I just wanted to mention this. Also, um, most most of my followers know I I, I wrote a uh, a novel recently, a science fiction novel, hard science fiction. I don't oh, I don't I, sure. I, yeah I don't get into the dumb you know magic stuff. You know I I really don't want to get into that. But yeah, know it's really was my first attempt at uh, trying to you know put uh, you know in in addition to really my big message in the book, which you know is going to come about in the sequels and so on and so forth. But you know, I I most of the characters you know in that book, you know they're Muslims, they're they're practicing Muslims. You know I try to do it in this in a way that was entirely different from what is portrayed today, you know? So uh, I just yeah. want to ask you about that. What, what, what do you think is the, you know, something we should all keep in mind, you know, as creators, as, you know, people who want to engage in this avenue?
1: So when I was in my early twenties, I wanted to get into all of this myself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to make a choice. You know, the, the thing with life is you have to make choices. Whenever you choose something, you have to give something else up. So I had to choose between writing Islamic books or writing novels. And I decided with that just what Allah has blessed me with, I said Islamic books is the way for me. But the part of me always wishes I wrote novels because I still got all these stories in my head that <laughs> I yeah. want to tell. <laughs> right. So uh, I've always, always been a strong promoter of Muslims having their own arts and their own voice in, 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 in the entertainment world. Uh, and I'm seeing the difference with the way my kids are growing up. Like, So when, when I was young, we had no Islamic media at all. Mm. And we would, oh, everything we watched was made by the Kufar. And our generation were just like head over heels about them wanting to be like them and do whatever they do. My kids, I'm seeing a bit more balance. Yeah, they're watching what they make, but they're also watching the rule they're also watching the okur series, they're also watching Muslim cartoons, they're also watching Muslim video clips on YouTube, uh, Muslim comedy st- shows. So what I'm seeing is my kids are growing up where, like, okay, they'll watch Batman, but they don't want to be like the Kufar because. They're also watching it and you know they're picking up manners from there and i'm seeing firsthand how muslim media uh how important it is in creating balance in the mind that when you see muslims on tv you know like this is one of the things i love about it so i have many criticisms of the show as you know but the one yeah, thing sure. i love about the show i've seen this in my community a lot of people in my community who were not practicing muslims who had terrible manners They watch Edurul and they learn good manners and character from that show.
0: Mm.
1: And, And that for me is amazing. Like the fact that you can just watch a show about a jihad between the Mongols and crusaders versus the Muslims. And watching that show, you're automatically absorbing how they eat, how they interact with their wives, how they interact with each other, how they forgive people, how they thank people. You're just absorbing all of that. That shows the power of media. That's what it really shows.
0: Yeah, and you' So doing, um... I, I think this
1: is amazing. It's amazing, but again, we're playing catch up, and everything yeah, else we're, exactly. we're like fifty years behind with media. We we wish by now we should have our own Netflix. You know, we should have like a, like a Netflix style channel with just Muslim shows because we should have like a hundred year backlog of videos to be watching. But again, for fifty years we're arguing whether it's haram or not, and you know, people want to kill the people who make these TV shows. And if you know that, uh, that the the guy who made the Umar series, he passed away with COVID. You know, but. Uh, after he made the Umar series, he wanted to make more series like that, but people actually threatened to kill him. He had received oh. death threats.
0: You know, I actually saw the first episodes of that. It's a very well made show. It's very well made. I, I actually
1: feel like even if you don't say it's 100% halal, I'd rather have of watching that than anything else.
0: You know? Exactly. Yeah. I've,
1: I've literally seen it change people's lives. I've seen people watch that. And because of that, they actually started studying Islam. Because of that, they actually started studying the lives of the Sahaba. And if it's pushing people away, uh, in the right direction, alhamdulillah. We don't realize, you know, uh, again, for some of us, come from very small bubbles where we don't realize what life is like for other people. We're like, I may not know what life is like for someone who's just constantly consuming non-Muslim media, mm-hmm. right? And then for that person to be exposed to the Umer series or the show, for that person, it, it, it's, it's breaking into their world. That person may never attend a lecture. That person may never search for, a, for an Islamic podcast, but he is watching TV shows. And if you could somehow reach him through these TV shows and then pull him back into our world, even if the show was not 100% halal, but the fact that it pulled him back into our world and now you have a chance to speak to him, that's good, right? And I think sometimes we're we scared because this is murky water, right? Uh, when it comes to media, it's 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 very really hard to tell what's 100% halal or 100% haram when it comes to media. Like, I, I mean, I was reading one of Ibn Hazm's books and uh, the Ring of the Duff, and uh, some of the descriptions of people's uh, sexual sexual pursuits got so graphic of like, this is not PG. Was yeah. the number one of the great alims in our history. And he didn't seem to have a problem with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I mean, how do we how do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? It's a conversation mm-hmm. that has to be ongoing. What I think needs to happen is people who are who are producing Islamic media, whether they're making movies or TV series or novels or comic books or, anything like this. Whoever's doing this needs to at least have one Islamic scholar who they are in constant contact with, yes. to approve their content. You know, to have a advisory you board. Know, like even for the Umar series, they had Sheikh Salman, the and Yusuf al Karadawi. They would take advice on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember who else, but They have, were like five ulama who they take advice on making their series. Uh, and and that, that helped a lot to, to keep it, you know, uh, good. Uh, I think everyone who's doing any kind of media, you need to have someone like, okay, this, this scholar, he gets me, I understand him, he understands me, I trust his knowledge, I trust his piety, when I write my novel, I'm going to get him to review, you to get his feedback on it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and what's happening today is we have a disconnect. The people making media, they like, don't trust the ulama at all, and the people, and then the, the ulama, are like, it's all haram, so I don't want to do with it, and so it, it is moving in opposite directions, they have to come together to find something in the middle. You know, the ulama have to be willing to interact with it. Like, uh, let me give you the example of a stand-up comedian. A Muslim stand-up comedian, when he goes to a, to a Molana or someone asks him for help, they want to be like, comedy is haram.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, he's not going to stop doing stand-up comedy. But now, when he does his stand-up comedy, there's no one telling him, hold on, this joke is inappropriate. This joke is guffar. Okay, that joke is good. Because someone just told him blanket, all comedy is bad you know, and he's not learned enough to, to know the limits. We don't, like, everyone's learned enough to know the limits. You know, they, they, everyone needs guides in their life. So that's why I'm saying if, if you are doing Islamic media, have a scholar in your life who you trust to review your work because they'll help keep it, you know, keep it halal or at least keep it as halal as possible.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. Have you ever seen the movie, The Message, the 1976 one?
1: Yeah, I watched that when I was a child. It was actually yes, so did I. <laughs> the,
0: first, the
1: first Islamic movie I watched. Uh, back then, I was like a hardcore, like, I was like really hardcore. I was like oh, in the middle of starting to be a Moderna, oh. right? And I like at that point believed that TV was haram. And my uncle, he just sat me down. and He put that on. He said, watch this. And I'm just looking at the screen like I was amazed. I was amazed that somebody had made that. I was actually trespassed at that time. And that, that's in my mind. First, I think, is it really Haram? You know, is there some leeway? Yeah. So it, it got my mind thinking. So, I'm, doing it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm you, happy about that. You know, thing. that
0: movie, it, it, I think it was responsible for so many. You speak to many uh, American Muslim converts. It's responsible for, really, I think, I've had thousands or tens of thousands of people accepting Islam, just from that one movie. It's, it's the same,
1: for example, with the with the autobiography of Malcolm X, and even the movie based on it. Yes. Uh, a lot of people, that was the, the, the gateway to Islam. That, that's what got them interested. So, yeah, the power of media, don't underestimate it. Yeah, even like, for example, someone like like, Khabib, someone like like Habib, someone like Habib, you know, he's he's out there in Western media, people can see him, interact with him, even if you don't agree with what he's playing. But the fact is, is, people who are watching him are people who otherwise might never have any exposure to Islam. Mm-hmm. And that becomes like a, 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 a opening for them, you know.
0: Yeah, the story of Malcolm X in particular, you know, I, this is something that you know I I wanted to mention as well, is that about, you know, when it comes to stories about Muslims in the media, the, the reason the story of Malcolm X hit so hard and it caused so many people to become interested in Islam is because it's not the story of a perfect saint. It's the story of somebody who had, you know, very humble, you know, uh, murky beginnings and who, you know, wasn't a perfect guy for, you know, a bit for a, bit, or a big part of his life. And then eventually found his way towards the end. And, you know, that it's, it's like this big character arc that happens yeah. to him you know subhanallah and it's 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 because of that story that got people so enraptured and wanting to find out right. about mainstream islam and you know this is something that i i was aiming at with my book with my book as well as you know i i realized there were most muslim media it ends up being well you know one of two things either the islam of the characters ends up becoming this afterthought and it just becomes something that's mentioned and you, you see this a lot in, in western media that has muslim characters yeah. or you know you have the opposite example which you know um you know, I think we witnessed a lot of this as kids, which is, you know, the very poor quality kinds of, you know, Islamic, you know, kind of productions where they sort of beat you. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly, it's it's very preachy. They try and beat you over the head. Like, oh, this is why it's haram. And it's like, you know, where's the story? Where's the development? Like, where's the the person actually learning through experiences? I I, I have never been able to get into those
1: type of things. I always felt like it's it's, it's too forced. It's too fake. It's Mm -hmm. too obvious. Yeah. You
0: know, it needs to be done in a more natural storytelling way. Exactly. Like with Ortur, for example, yeah. uh, when in the first episode, um, this is one of my criticisms of the show, even though it's an extremely well-made show, you know. Yeah. Uh, I made this joke. I said, you you can see why the Turkish letter was, was close to collapsing because they put so much money into that show. But, you know, yeah. like uh, <laughs> um, there was a scene where one of the villains, I think he was one of the one of the uh i think warlords of the region that I sort of i guess was going to fight with later i haven't i haven't i don't think i've I've had time to continue yeah. it where he goes oh yes the muslims are so much easier to, to control when they're fighting each other and i'm like okay that's a little too on the nose <laughs> you know, the dialogue yeah. in that way
1: yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah those kind of things you, you uh, it's better when it's subtle it's better when people watch it and they realize oh yes this yeah. is why it's bad you know because- rather than someone preaching it and exactly. I think that's something with uh, Muslims who are making B J need to learn, uh, and I see it in almost everything, whether it's a Muslim novel or a movie or a TV show, we get too preachy. You know, we're scared that people are not going to get the point, and so at some point, the lecture, the character just breaks into a lecture. <laughs> yeah, because that's just basic like, so-
0: storytelling. It's, yeah, it's basic storytelling. It's <laughs> like uh, you want the, the the audience to come to a lot of these conclusions themselves, because when they do it themselves, they appreciate it way more than if you were to just shove yeah. it down their throats. And, and that's why we love novels, I think, because
1: uh, a novel that's life-changing. It doesn't. It doesn't preach to you, but you get the message just from from thinking about the story and reflecting on the story and, and going along with the character on their journey. I mean, uh, this this is why the Lord of the Rings is so popular, right? Uh, that you connect with with Samwise Gamgee or Aragorn, and 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 you learn with them, and, and you grow with them, and and you. You learn the lessons they learn without anyone at any point stopping, and, and you're having like a ten-page lecture explaining all the lessons of of, of what's going on.
0: <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, so um, okay, I think I've, I've kept you for long enough. Uh, I know in fifteen minutes, 15 minutes uh, it's it's going to be a um, your time. Thank you so much for um, for coming on. We, uh, this is a really fun discussion. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed yes. it. Too yes alhamd- alhamdulillah uh, so tell me i uh, really just uh promote all your stuff tell us where can people find you uh,
1: khair. uh so i'm online like all the time uh, mainly I- i'm most active on twitter so if you just search for me on twitter that's like uh that's where i like to hang out that's where all the crazy people are so it's fun you know? yeah <laughs> and uh facebook's gone very boring so i barely use my facebook anymore it's where yeah. the old people are <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you'll find me on Facebook, find me on Instagram, find me on YouTube, uh, but I'm mostly on Twitter. My blog is IslamicSelfHelp.com, uh, where you'll find all my ebooks and my online courses. Of course, the main course that I'm promoting at the moment is The History of Islam, which is what we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. And linked to that, my book, Productivity Principles of Umar bin Abdul Aziz. Uh, those are my two main products. I love to promote uh, mainly because that's my favorite book that I wrote and my favorite course that I put together, and the ones I feel that are most beneficial. So uh, you know, if you're going to start anywhere on my website, start with those two, with those two, that book and that course. Um, also, with the Yakin Institute, I run the books department there. So, like, if you go to Yakin Institute's books page, you'll find some books written by me and edited by me there. Uh, but and yeah, if you uh, if you if you want to listen to my talks, uh, you'll find them. On my YouTube channel, or on Muslim Central, right? i don't think I do have a channel on Muslim Central. In fact, I do have a podcast channel. If you go to
0: Google or Apple and type in my name, podcast channel, you should pop up all my lectures on it as well. Yes, yes. I, I'm gonna link all of these two in the description as well. Uh, okay, thank you so much. Uh, that's it, guys. Uh, see you next time. Assalamualaikum. alaikum. As-salamu